From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. Today on The Newsroom, New Hanover County has 12 low-performing schools. Many of these are low-income schools with disproportionately high numbers of Black and Hispanic students, a symptom of the county's deeply segregated schools. Improving these schools' rankings has proven a thorny issue, and traditional approaches like increasing per-student funding and reducing teacher-student ratios have helped, but not fixed the issue. That's in part due to the fact that students at many of these schools are dealing with high levels of ACEs. Those are adverse childhood experiences, essentially types of childhood trauma that can have serious impacts on health and well-being. ACEs also have a clear impact on student performance because, frankly, kids dealing with domestic and gang violence in and around their homes, substance abuse, food and housing insecurity, and poverty aren't going to have the same levels of focus and attention of kids who aren't dealing with those things. Those ACEs can also mean trouble regulating emotional responses to stress, and that means some pretty bad behavior in the classroom. And while young students are struggling with all of this, Teachers are struggling with maintaining discipline and trying to keep their students' grades up. You layer those extremely challenging conditions on top of major changes affecting the workforce nationwide and the mounting financial pressure of inflation and the affordable housing crisis, and you can see how recruiting and retaining talented teachers and staff to these schools could be incredibly difficult. Look, it's a tough situation and a tough story to report on, because the problem involves some racially charged data. We're talking about the disparities between how black and white students are performing, for example, or the struggle to keep staff at low-performing schools that have high black student populations. Cutting through stereotypes and getting to the root of the issue and then dealing with it, well, that's gonna take work. But there is some good news in the form of a recently created task force designed to do that work. Now, I know the phrase task force doesn't always inspire confidence. To be blunt, it's sometimes the reactionary move government makes instead of really dealing with a problem. That said, my colleague Rachel Keith got to sit in on the turnaround task force first meeting. She came back from the meeting optimistic, telling me the conversation was candid, that's always a good start, and productive. And there were some heavy hitters on the task force, including elected officials and important stakeholders. So here to help me further lay out what we're dealing with and what this task force has discussed so far is Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to talk about New Hanover County Schools Turnaround Task Force. There's a lot to unpack here, but this has to do with addressing issues at the district's 12 low-performing schools. So we're going to hear from a lot of people today from a recent meeting of this task force, but let's back up a little bit and talk about where this came from. This came from school board member Stephanie Walker, from the superintendent, Dr. Charles Faust, and the chief academic officer, Dr. Patrice Faison. So it's my understanding that the three of them really worked on this together and came up with this task force, and they decided to go with 16 members of the community to work on these 12 schools and what they can do to fix it. And Patrice Faison said, we're not here to blame, we're not here to change everything, but we're here to look at the data and talk about possible solutions to address the stark data that we're seeing with test proficiencies among our schools in the district. 
And she also talked about, so what happened is that everybody introduced themselves and said what function that they could serve, how they could help the task force. And Patrice Faison gave the initial talk about the data. And she talked about what does it mean for a school to be proficient? And she used an analogy that did the kids hit the wall at the end of the year? Did they reach the percentage pass rate? Or did they grow? And that is based on typically EVOS scores and with how well their teachers get these kids and the school to grow on these test scores. So you have proficiency versus growth. And so she outlined that. And then we're going to hear from her talking about this issue. We know that in some of these schools, they are not proficient and it shows up in North Carolina public schools report cards. And so she talks about this predicament about the community and even the teachers deciding where they want to send their kids to school or where teachers want to go and work. Yes, we've got a lot to unpack. Real quick, for people who don't know, what is EVOS? EVOS is an algorithm that software company SAS created. And we don't know all of the metrics that make up this algorithm. But basically, they can measure a kid and how they're coming in at the beginning of the year. And then their end-of-year test, they can see how much they grew. And then that is the EVOS score. That is how much a teacher impacted the learning of the student. Okay, and we're going to get into a lot of the factors that go into what makes a low-performing school, which is part of how we're going to address how to fix that. But I, I want to take a quick note here and say uh, this was recorded during the first meeting of the task force. This was not a public meeting, so the sound was a little bit catch-as-catch-can. You were invited there because of your reporting, but you were kind of in there with a shotgun mic. So I just want to make that note when you're going to hear some voices are more clear than others. Okay, so here's Patrice Faison talking about one of the most critical issues, and that's teachers. I want you to think about what is a school that you think is easy to teach. Whatever reason you think is easy. I don't want you to say anything, I just want you to think. Now what is a school that you think is challenging to teach? I don't want you to say anything. You're a teacher, you can go teach anywhere. Which one are you going to? She said there, which one are you going to? And then she said, well that's our challenge here, is to get excellent teachers in these schools that have been so far low performing. And so that's what she put to the task force. How can we be creative and talking about how we incentivize teachers to go in these schools that really need highly qualified educators' help? Yeah, and we'll get into this a little more, but one of the things we're seeing from the data that some of the people on this task force have put together is that, yes, you can increase per-pupil spending, and you can reduce the ratio of teachers to students, meaning each teacher has fewer students that they're responsible for, and those are part of the issue, but it's not the whole story. That's right. And here was pretty interesting. Clifford Barnett is a city councilman, and he was also invited to be a part of this task force. And him and Dr. Faison had some really interesting conversations during this task force. And here's what Barnett is saying to Patrice about, what do you think you need? What they say, the reason we're struggling with performances is because we need more bodies in the school. Like, would they need more teachers' aides, things like that? I think, I, if I'm being honest, I think they would say that, but I would say the data doesn't say that. But I think they would say that. I, I do, honestly. Uh, because I think, as a principal, you're, I'm never going to say I have too much. I mean, you're just not. I can always take more. 
But I can tell you, I don't know if you guys are aware, but we supplement more than what the state does already. But um, it's just not with research that, that, that's not what happened with those, that school, like Sunset. So a couple of contextual things here. What happened at Sunset Park, so this is what Patrice Faison talked about a lot, was that they were closing that achievement gap. She mentioned that this principal, Diego Lahaki, about 50% of this elementary school population speaks English as a second language, but they have been improving by very large margins in the past couple of years. And she said it's due to him being a strong leader, that there's low turnover rates at the school, that they meet kids where they are, and that this leader motivates people in his building and supports his teachers. So right now they're at technically a D, but she said they're so close to a C that they can smell it, end quote. So she's saying that it's not just more people, it's what kind of people you are putting into the schools and what they can do. She also mentioned about the supplement, and yes, Dr. Faust has talked about this at the school board meetings, that the county does supplement a good amount of extra positions. They do uh, supplement the salaries at some of the highest in the state as well. So that's what she's talking about. But yes, going back to Barnett's question, would more people be helpful, I'm sure it would be, but the research, according to her, is about the quality of people that are in that building. And that's going to be particularly important as we get into the issue of ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences, and the kind of cultural competency that a teacher needs to deal with people who are coming from specific communities. You can't, I mean, from everything we've seen and from the people we've talked to, you cannot plop any teacher down in any school. So there's also just the simple fact that some of these schools that are low performing also have a lot of behavioral issues and it can be stressful and that is a part of turnover. That's right. And here is Dr. Faison talking about some of the higher turnover rates in some of these schools. We have schools where 39% of our teachers are in and out, in and out, in and out. That's a high attrition rate. How do you develop and build culture and give some stability there? So they presented some data. Eight of the 12 low-performing schools and nine of the Title I schools, that means at least 40% of that population is on free and reduced lunch. They are in that range. It's 61 to 84%. It's an average of 79% turnover. And so she's talking about the 39% is on the higher end. And she said during this discussion that overall the district, 85% retention rate. And then she also mentioned that in some of these schools that the novices outweigh the veteran teachers. And that's also an issue. She talked about that it's important to have a good mix of veterans and novices. And if you look at the better performing schools, they have the 93 average retention rate. So there is a correlation there. Okay, so another issue I want to get into a little bit is, and we've heard this from parents, is about holding kids back when they aren't reaching the standards of a particular grade or pushing them forward when they haven't met those standards. And here's Barnett talking about that issue and Faison's response. So if they're not proficient, um, do they get passed on anyway? 
it is, I wouldn't use the term pass phone, but they do move to the next grade, because we do know that research says the worst thing you can do to a student is to hold them back. The worst thing. To add additional uh, context, she did say except in kindergarten through first grade. That would be more appropriate to retain students. She sent me a link to an Ed Week article that compiled some of the data or the research on saying that the retention is not the best thing and that they won't have the best educational outcomes and that basically what she was saying is that teachers, that's part of their job is to catch kids up to where they need to be um, instead of making them repeat the whole entire grade. And I wanted to mention as well, I've done some research and some reporting on student growth and what really matters. And I talked to UNC professor Sartain and she said, the number one impact on student growth is their teacher and behind that is the principal. So again, we have the type of person that is leading you on your educational journey is really what matters here. I think one issue that we've heard a lot of debate about is what role the home life plays. And this is crucial when we're talking about ACEs, which we'll get into later in today's show. But I think it intuitively feels to people that when you've got a support system at home, you know, parents who are engaged, maybe helping with your homework, talking to you about the ideas that you're dealing with in school, that that's going to be beneficial. And Faust actually kind of broke the fourth wall a little bit and actually talked about his own experience. That's right. In a lot of our homes, my children, I'll be selfish, they know they have two parents who are rooting for them every single day. Um, they come home to an environment where it's like they are able to learn, uninterrupted learning. Not everyone gets to do that. Whether it's, when I say uninterrupted, it may be I have to go to work after school. Um, I've got to go pay bills. So you have Dr. Faust there saying about the reality that some students can't sit down for four hours and do all of their homework because they're out working or they're out helping their parents support the household. So that is an issue. But we will hear from him later that he thinks a lot of the issue is what kind of expectations are we setting for students in the classroom? And he did say during this discussion that these kids in these lower performing schools need to see people who look like them being successful. They need to have support out in the community with wraparound services. And I did want to say on this parental issue, which was really interesting, I talked earlier about Dr. Faison bringing up Sunset Park and saying that it was really the people in that building that really helped support the kids in their academic journey. But Clifford Barnett said, well, you said it was 50% were ESL. Does that mean that those parents would be more motivated? Typically, immigrant communities are pushing their kids, making sure that they're getting their the best education possible. But then Faison responded, quote, no, and I'm going to tell you why. Parenting is critical, but we can do it in the seven and a half hours that we have them. So you have that. And I, I can say from firsthand experience, um, when I was a college professor teaching English, I taught uh, this up in on Long Island at uh, the State University of New York at Sunnybrook, and a lot of my students were second-generation immigrants from Southeast Asia. And there is a stereotype that these students are pushed very hard by their parents, but there's anecdotally, I can say, a lot of truth behind that stereotype, where the idea of coming home after a semester with anything less than a 4.0 GPA right. would be unacceptable. And, I mean, obviously that's a broad generality, but that's what Barnett is getting at. Yeah. And I think there is some debate about the standards that a parents at home have 
versus the standards that a school has. Obviously, if you've got a supportive family at home, that's great. But if you don't have that, can the school make up for it? Right. And that's Dr. Faison saying, yes, they can. And if you think about the parents being supportive at home and having high expectations, and then you have the school having high expectations, yeah, I'm sure that the students know that they really need to do something with their education. Let's hear from County Commissioner Rob Zappel. He talked about the school scoring system, the state scoring system. And I will say that State Superintendent Catherine Truitt has created also a task force to look at how schools are graded. And I'll talk more about this, but let's hear what he had to say. And so it feels as though this scoring system, I know it's handed down to you, is stacked against us and stacked against doing the very thing you're trying to do. So it's playing a game with rules that are not certainly in our favor, but make it really hard to succeed. Uh, it almost seems like it's biased against those low-performing schools that they'll never be able to get, you know, dig out of that hole. So let's go over what it means to be a low-performing school. If you get a school performance grade by DPI of the school getting a D or an F and the school has an EVOS growth status of does not meet expectations or meets expectations. So basically what it means is are the kids proficient on these test scores? Are they growing? And the grade components, 80% of that grade is based off of proficiency. 20% is based off of growth on these test scores. So you have Rob Zappel and the state superintendent. People are talking about this breakdown and is it the best breakdown? And they're still studying that. Okay, well, I want to put a pin in that. We've been talking about New Hanover County's low performing schools here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we will be back to that conversation in just a moment. We need to take just a quick break. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. We've been discussing New Hanover County's low-performing schools, and I think an important part of the conversation is that the label of a low-performing school has sure. impacts about not just who wants to teach there, because there is a stigma attached to it, but also who wants to send their kids there. That's right, and I will say, you know, and that's Rob Zappel's point, is that we have some of these schools that are growing. Look at Sunset Park. Wow, it's getting better and better. But you still see that right now, that letter grade of a D. And this segues into the real estate issue. As a reporter, that was interesting watching people really grapple with this problem because this is what people out in the community, if you're you're out talking to people, you're going to be talking about schools. You're going to be talking about neighborhoods. Um, you want to go to those A and B schools. And so here's Stephanie Walker on what she said about that. When you do neighborhood schools, you're basically, parents that want to move here, they look at the grading of the schools, they go, oh, I don't want to live here. And then, then you never change anything that way. And I think part of the task force, I mean, it's not gonna just be redistricting will solve this. There are many different ways to get at this issue, but Walker is bringing up that 
if they don't do something to change how the schools are doing, we'll continue to have these 12 low-performing schools. And this is an issue that the task force will be looking at. And Dr. Faust also brought this up, too. Who's looking at the schools? Well, realtors are looking at the schools. When they are looking to sell a home, this is a high-performing school. Although we say that the grade, that doesn't matter. Parents look at grades of a school when they're moving in. Economic development looks at the grade of a school. And so the best thing that has ever happened, um, and I've been on both sides of it, where it was the high performing and everyone's trying to break the door down to get in to the part where it's like, we'll just give you money to keep them out of our neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, you fix it. And they're like, oh, well, we want your kids. They're welcoming them now. But then it's this acceptance, because every child wants to be accepted. And I've always had a strong push on interrupting students' lives and putting them in a place where they're not welcome. That's probably the hardest. So here we're getting down to the the core of the issue, and that is about on the one hand, we got higher performing schools and the data that, again, this task force is starting to look at does show that at schools that have a mix of some Title I type students, so low income families, yes, black and Hispanic students, but also white students, when there is a mix of students from low income families with higher income families, they do look like they do a little bit better. But on the other hand, you know, you look at the history of schools like Williston and the desire to be in a school that is in your community where maybe the teachers there look like you, meaning like if you're a young black student and you see a black principal or a black teacher, that's inspirational. And you and lives in your neighborhood. And lives in your neighborhood. Not only does that help with discipline because they could say, hey, I know your mother. Right. But there's a tension there between the idea of a community school. And we hear, you know, neighborhood schools used as kind of a code word for segregation. And that is true. But there is a flip side to it. And I think that's uh, in part what, what Faust is getting at. Yeah, he's saying that he wants kids to belong and he doesn't want to take a kid out of his or her community and send them somewhere else that potentially, you know, they haven't fixed the school yet or there's an issue and it's not as welcoming. So, I mean, this is what they're also looking at. And like you said, this is a pretty big problem, a pretty big issue to solve. Yeah, but it's worth noting that the New Hanover County Schools District is still heavily segregated. Yes. If you look at some of the lowest scoring schools, for example, Rachel Freeman Elementary, overwhelmingly black and is one of the lowest scored schools in the state, not just in our own county. And that's a real problem. And so, and again, to a certain extent, there are people who say, hey, we've got to desegregate the schools, and I'm not taking up that issue, but what some of the task force members are saying is that the data doesn't show that that'll fix the problem at these schools. Yeah, it's something larger. So Scott Wisnett, who worked for New Hanover Regional Medical Center for a long time, uh, and has spoken with us about his passion for this, has been looking at this for a long time and had a lot to say about these racial disparities. You know, even within those 12 low-performing schools, there are some that are very low-performing, uh, even more so than the others. And those are the ones, sadly, to correlate with race. I believe the district has a problem reaching black children that we've got to put out there and we have to address. The schools where there are yet majority, um, minority, and high poverty schools are doing significantly worse 
than some of the ones you're talking about, which deserve all the credit you're talking about. But you talk about Freeman, Snipes, and Forest Hills, and then Virgo, which is no longer a county school, but for other reasons, but it's right there. You have a distinctly different issue that I think we have to get to, and that's going to have to do with the community. So here, Scott Wisnett is getting at this core issue of what happens in the classroom and what happens in the school, and from the data, real evidence that moving a low-income black student to a more affluent white neighborhood might partially address the problem, but it won't fix the problem. And I think, it's, it's, as he says, it is complicated. It's complicated. It may be more complicated than even hiring certain kinds of teachers. We're going to have to have teachers who want to be in those schools, uh, even regardless of experience level. And I think we need to understand that when we talk about the difference uh, in, in race between the kids, our African-American children are doing significantly worse. That's actually through the whole district, but especially when you get them concentrated in a handful of schools to the point that we're going to need an intervention that's going to be really multifaceted and very creative. So this is the challenge that Scott is laying out, and this is what the task force is faced with, because there are, look, there will always be the need for more people. There will always be the need for more funding. But what Scott's pointing at is this issue of how does the district reach black students where they are? And that's not simple. And I think we're going to get into that later in the show when we talk about what makes this so challenging for those students. But when Scott says, you know, it's more complicated than hiring certain kinds of teachers, we can just put a fine point on that and say it's not enough to just hire a black teacher for black students. There really has to be a whole philosophy behind how people teach, how administrators run the school, and, and how you think about these problems. Yeah, it has to be a whole environmental upheaval. And I mean, I've watched the school board meetings and they talk about school culture and leadership. And that also, like we've heard from a lot of these task force members, that involves the community, not just the school out of context of that. So there are a lot of things that this task force will have to sift through and see what might work best. And those will probably be long-term solutions, but they're going to start to work out on them now. Yeah. And before we take a break, um, I want to talk about this last thing. This is something that Superintendent Charles Faust has brought up many, many times. And that is when, and in fact, he was on the newsroom a couple of weeks ago talking about this very issue, is that what we're moving towards here is talking about ACEs or trauma-informed approach, understanding why children are having so much difficulty behaving and learning and focusing in class. And it is incredibly important to hold that in one hand, but at the same time, not just dropping expectations. So here's Faust on the issue of expectations. How do we make sure that the same expectation that they get at a high-performing school is the expectation that they get at a low-performing school. Why is it that a high-performing school makes or exceeds growth and a low-performing school doesn't? Um, if you are in whatever neighborhood that's the most prominent neighborhood here that has the most prominent school, what happens in that school? There's an expectation. When you first walk into the community, when you walk into the school, there's an expectation. So why is it you go six miles down the road and there's no expectation? That's why our kids get into trouble. That's why there's a lack of understanding for laws and rules because the expectation has been dropped. So again, I just ask that you think really hard about what will it take to turn around the school 
and keep it moving. And so that's my why. And we also heard from Scott Wisnett who said, yeah, Dr. Faust, I agree with you. Why if you go down six miles down the road and it's a totally different picture? So that is the goal of the task force from what was explained is trying to get more uniformity around the district and that there's not a super low performing versus a super high. It's not this stark difference, but to bring them all in line and all the schools are doing well. Okay, well, I think that lays out what the problem of low performing schools looks like. And we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have more with my colleague, Rachel Keith, and we're gonna look at ways to address these issues that we've laid out. I'm Ben Shockman. you're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm News Director Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. And we're talking about New Hanover County's low performing schools. And to talk about that, you got to talk about what is making schools so challenging for students. And a large part of that, Rachel, from your reporting, is ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And this, as you've reported, can be a whole host of stuff. It could be food insecurity. It could be lack of secure housing. It could be violence in your neighborhood. It could be interpersonal violence in your own family. It could be drug and alcohol use. It could be sexual abuse. It could be all kinds of things in any number of combinations. But we know from the data that ACEs sometimes show up in higher concentrations in low-income neighborhoods, and those are the students that are going to Title I schools like some of the low-performing schools that we're talking about. And uh, Stephanie Walker, who's a board member who put this task force together, as you know, has really been a champion of this kind of thinking. Yes, and I wanted to say her reason for doing this task force, one of the reasons is, like you said, Ben, is to address these adverse childhood experiences, and that includes poverty. What you had after Patrice Faison's presentation was... Stephanie Walker giving her why and giving her story. And she's given her story to HQR before. And just to summarize, and she's spoken about this publicly, is that she was a child that experienced sexual abuse. She experienced parents with mental health issues. She experienced suicide attempts by her caregivers. She experienced alcoholism on the part of her caregivers. I mean, what she described basically told the task force what she went through as a young child, what she went through in high school, and how she struggled. And here she is talking about that. I just want to pause for a second just to say this. I want to know, um, it's a rhetorical question, how much learning do you think was happening for me when I was in school? Not very much. For kids, um, you know, they deal with a lot of trauma at home. It's very difficult for them to learn. They're surviving right now. They're in survival mode, and um, they, as, tr- as try as they might, and school is a, a place of learning. It's a safe place for kids. They get a meal. They get um, supervision, hopefully. They get some learning done, but it's difficult. So here she is laying out the problem, is that if you are in a survival mode, if you are dealing with major ACEs from what we just described, She asked the rhetorical question to the 16 members, how much learning do you think I was doing during that time? 
So educators and the community has a big to do ahead of them to try and intervene the best that they can. And she went on to say that, how is she still here? Why am I standing in front of you? She's had a happy marriage. She has her own family, her children. She has, she went back and got an MPA at UNCW. Um, She's on the school board now, obviously. She said that positive adults, and this came up in my ACEs reporting, saved her life, essentially. That was her grandmother. Those were her teachers at New Hanover High. Those were her counselors. There was one assistant principal in particular who didn't give up on her. So this is her reason and motivating the task force is that we have to be these adults out in the community trying to make a difference. And if we're all committing to that, then there will be a difference made. But if it's very minuscule and not coordinated, then how much of an impact can that person make? Exactly. And this goes back to the complicated approach that Scott Wisnett is talking about. I've spoken to some teachers and staff, current and former, at some of these low-performing schools. And some of them have said, look, we really need black and Hispanic teachers in these schools because... It's not just that they look like the students they're teaching and the students can look up to them. It's because a lot of them grew up in low-income neighborhoods in Wilmington, and they understand intuitively the aces that these students are dealing with, even if they never theorized it that way, even if they never you know, had the, the professional schooling to understand it in those terms. They just recognize it. But it's not a necessity. So the same teachers and faculty have said, It doesn't have to be a black teacher. It doesn't have to be a Hispanic teacher. It doesn't have to be someone from a low-income neighborhood, but it has to be someone who understands. The competency. And so when we say cultural competency, when we say a trauma-informed approach to teaching, that's what we're talking about. Someone who sees a kid come in in first period and is shell-shocked or is exhausted emotionally and doesn't immediately say, oh, why is this student not immediately taking out their math book? It's, I think I know why the student is not taking out their math book. That's right. And I, you know, my recent reporting with communities and schools, they're in the schools to be a support. And yes, they do deal with a lot of these ACEs like you talked about, Ben. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about some of the ways the task force discussed improving the situation. Yes, at the end, all of the task force members wrote down, they did some sticky notes and wrote down what they thought could help this large issue of solving or getting these 12 schools back up to par, get them to um, high performing. And I thought communities and schools, he is the director of operations there, and his name is Mario Jeter. And he suggested the school district looking into a full-service community model for 25% of the lower-performing schools. And this is how he described it to the task force. It is through the uh, Department of Education. It's a turnaround model for low-performing schools. Um, And uh, there's an incentivized um, pay scale as well for teachers, but it takes the best and the brightest teachers and incentivizes them to work inside of the schools. Mm -hmm. Um, The community is more incorporated to the schools. The families receive services. Case management supports the entire family of the students as well. And the parents of the students can receive job training and wellness screenings and all these things. But everything is incorporated. It's full service inside Mm -hmm. of the schools. And I talked to recently UNCW professor Dr. Anka Roberto, and she talked about 
when we we try to help support kids, we can't do it in a vacuum. We have to help their families. If you help the families, then the kid is better able to function at school or do better. And we also have other ideas that I thought were interesting. Port City United's Jarrett Gaddison, he talked about having more community events that bring everyone together. CFCC employees, Sabrina Terry, talked about offering incentives for teachers who start their careers at CFCC or UNCW. Clifford Barnett talked about it's important to see kids out at church, out at the park, to say hi to them, to create that community feel. Josh Smith, who is the outgoing public information officer of the school system, he's going to the county. He talked about, like Sabrina Terry mentioned, these incentives for for pay. If you go to these lower-performing schools, you get more money, you get more support. And then Rob Zappel, who's the county commissioner, said, why don't we offer housing subsidies to teachers and staff who work at these schools as well? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to approach this. And and one thing I want to touch on real quick is this idea of, you know, bringing in the community and the parents. And anecdotally, a thing we hear all the time when we talk about well-performing schools is a PTA. But it really depends on what a PTA does. If you've got a high-performing school in an affluent neighborhood, a PTA really just takes it to the next level. So now we're talking about extracurricular activities, athletics, because the kids are already supported in and outside of the school. They're hitting all their benchmarks. They're hitting the wall, right? Right, they're hitting the wall. But I've heard, particularly from Rachel Freeman, that for years they had an excellent PTA that was really focused way more on the fundamentals of what was happening in the classroom, where we had parents, and this is sometimes difficult for people to talk about, we had parents who struggled sometimes with math, sometimes with reading and writing. And so helping them prepare to prepare their kids. So saying like, hey, next month we're doing a unit on division. Here's what we're going to do. Let's make sure you understand it so when your kid brings home homework, you can help them. And sort of like a parent training camp. And that was incredibly helpful for parents, and then that helped the kids. Apparently that's not happening anymore, and it's had a real negative impact. So – Bringing the community in looks a lot of different ways, but there's, you know, there is, as we've seen, kind of debate about does it happen at home? Does it happen at the school? Well, I mean, there's a lot of connectivity there that would probably help. Yeah. Impoverished families or neighborhoods, they don't have these major resources, so they do have to look to the community. They can't just do it on their own necessarily all the time. Throughout this entire two-hour task force meeting that I was at, I mean, That's interesting that you say that because the resounding takeaway was the community coming in so that the teachers feel supported, the principals feel supported, that the kids feel supported outside of school as well. I mean, it's a whole ecosystem that you need to build for success, not just these individualized silos. This is what I heard at this meeting. Yeah, I mean, the the saying is it takes a village, and that sounds like a very Pollyannish truism. But when you get into the specifics of how the community can come into the school, it starts to make a lot of sense. And you're like, oh, yeah. Right. Sadly, I mean, I talked to an assistant principal recently and said that she just realized that one family she works with doesn't even have power on at the house. I mean, there are major issues that some of these impoverished schools have to deal with. And the administrators have to help the families and help the kids through really difficult challenges like that one. Yeah, I spoke to a teacher at a a low-performing school who had one student that she knew was homeless. Another student she knew didn't have air conditioning, which, you know, some people might write off as not having a luxury. But in the summer in Wilmington, if you don't have air conditioning, you're not sleeping. 
You're that's right. You're miserable, and you're coming in an uncomfortable, grumpy, tired wreck the yes. next day. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. But we should also talk about the teachers and the staff themselves, because this can be, with no disrespect to the students, it can be grueling work. Yes, Elizabeth Redenbaugh, she joined via Zoom, but she sent Kristen Williams, and I've talked to her before. She's also of Coastal Horizons. She talked about, again, part of the ACEs and the trauma-informed model and the resiliency task force. They talk about, and we talked about this, Ben, on the newsroom, putting your mask on first so you can help others. And so she's talking, Kristen Williams is talking about that. We were talking about ACEs. We were talking about if we can see them, we can be them. But that also means having a healthy system of educators who have the capacity to reach kids in the way that they need to be reached. So understanding that we can keep kids in focus, but we can go about how we engage kids by engaging grown-ups. So the grown-ups and their capacity to help really matters when you're talking about improving kids' test scores and improving their academic achievement is, does that educator have their oxygen mask on? Can they teach? Can they be effective? Do they have the support of the parents and families of the students they teach? And I guess another thing we should talk about is that there are no unsalvageable students. But, right. But the research has shown that it is easier to kind of course correct earlier in a kid's academic career because especially what Faison was talking about is not holding students back. Well, the flip side of that is they might end up being a little bit more behind every single year. So the earlier you get to them, understand where they're coming from, understand what their challenges are, the better the prognosis is going to be. Yeah, I don't hear much pushback on that. So one of the ways to capitalize on that opportunity has been, you know, the idea of universal pre-K. And yes, here's Scott Wisnett, who is also a member of the task force. Uh, I think we should implement trauma-informed schools uh, to deal with ACEs, not only for our students, but mainly for our teachers, so they understand what they're looking for and understand their own lives. I think we need to talk about universal pre-K. Do we build that out or do we convert existing space? But every kid before they hit kindergarten needs to hit pre-K. I think we need to fund tools so that all third graders can read, whether that's tutors, assistant teachers. So Scott had a lot of ideas. He went on to give some other ones, but those were the the ones that he started with about those trauma-informed schools with the universal pre-K with educators. And they talk about the third grade reading level is so important for their trajectory for the rest of their K through 12 schooling. And like you said, Ben, you know, there's always a chance to intervene. But like you said, it's it's better to get the earlier as you can as possible. And switching to also we mentioned Elizabeth Redenbaugh. She is on this task force. She's a former school board member. She was against the neighborhood school model. Ultimately, she lost that battle and was not reelected to the school board. But she talked about the work of this task force. If they cannot get the people who make decisions on board with this, then we're just having an interesting academic discussion. We can have all the wonderful ideas in the world from this task force, but if we don't have our school board on board with us, our county commissioners, our state um, representatives, et cetera, we're not gonna get anywhere. So I think that has to be an integral part of what we do. 
And what will be really interesting about moving forward with this task force is you do have to come to consensus. And that is very difficult to do with the democratic process. I mean, it's an important integral part because you're hoping that the best ideas will move forward through this lengthy process of discussion. But there are a lot of ideas on how you solve these issues. And they are multifaceted as well. You know, you could do one idea here, maybe another idea here. But this is supposed to be the work of the task force, hashing out these ideas and hopefully coming up with a plan to start implementing the ideas. Yeah. And I think the other thing we should point out is that there's some real movers and shakers on this task force. You've got members of Wilmington City Council. You've got members of the New Hanover County Board of Commissioners. Uh, We didn't hear from him, but you've got uh, William Buster, who is the CEO of the New Hanover County Endowment. That's a $1.25 billion endowment that once it's fully up and running in a couple of years, could be generating as much as $50 million in annual grants. Now, I know a lot of people look to the endowment as sort of a catch-all. They will save us, but that is a lot of annual funding. And certainly I have heard um, from folks involved with the endowment that universal pre-K might be a direction they could go. But all of these people have to do something with their positions of power. Or as you said, Rachel, we're just having an interesting academic conversation. Right. And William Buster was pretty honest. I guess he's been through these discussions in Guilford County, and he said they were quite contentious because, again, people have different ideas on how to fix low-performing schools. And people like Patrice Faison and Stephanie Walker were looking to William Buster to help support them and how they could really be more concrete and strategic about the work that they do on this task force. And he seemed open to that as well. Yeah. Well, again, it's, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, or rather in the budgets. Yes. But let's turn to Stephanie Walker for some final thoughts. Yes. Here we have Walker talking about she's been in this community her whole life. She went to New Hanover High and she's basically saying that the community's made some improvements. They've made some back steps, but there's more this task force can work on and make a difference on. We've seen this community and it's changing, but there's some things that just have not have changed that need to absolutely change in order for our kids to do, do well. And I want to see them grow up and be able to get a job and have a life and do something with themselves. Be productive members of our society. And I think we have people on this task force with very different ideas, different political backgrounds, but I think everyone could get on board with that. We want to see kids pick up something that they enjoy and that potentially that will spell into a career and that they will be functional members of society. I think that most people could get on board with that end result. It's just how do we get there? One thing, and I'll leave you, this is my final thoughts on this, is this is one of the wealthiest counties in the state, and we have some of the brightest minds in the state. Surely this group of people with these resources, if anyone could, can fix this problem. We will see because they are meeting later this month to, because they just started the task force. This was their first meeting. All of this sound and tape is from their very first meeting, and They are, in the meantime, they were supposed to brainstorm who's not at this table that maybe needs to be here. They're also supposed to get the results of a principal needs assessment. So basically, my understanding is that they're sending out this, what do you need? What would help your school? You know, what would improve the situation? And Dr. Patrice Faison also said that they're hoping to invite principals on a rotating basis to talk to these people, to tell them what their experiences are and what would help them. So that will be interesting as well, because we know that a principal at Freeman versus Masonboro have very different needs and wants. And the task force needs to understand those needs. And there's differences, essentially. We also 
are going to, they're trying to fix the mission and vision statement. They think they're pretty wordy at this point. They want something pithier and something that they can say in an elevator to a friend so that everybody knows what they're doing and what they're trying to do. After this meeting, my understanding is that they're going to meet quarterly and make progress throughout the following school year on some recommendations to fix these low-performing schools. All right. Well, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for being here. Thank you. And I want to thank the task force for allowing me to witness these really honest conversations so that I can tell the public who ultimately, probably any of these recommendations would ultimately have to be voted on and understood by the public. Well, I know that you will be following this process because, as you said, this was just the first meeting, so it's not their fault that they didn't fix everything in the first meeting. <laughs> right. But we will be keeping They're an getting eye. started. They're getting started, and that is a good thing. So I know that you'll be keeping an eye on this in the coming months, in the coming years, so thank you so much. Thank you. Well, all right. That's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to my colleague, Rachel Keith, for bringing us some really great insights about what the Turnaround Task Force is working on, and to the task force members themselves for allowing her to join them. We don't have time here, but we'll have a full list of all those good folks on the show page. I do want to thank Task Force member Scott Wisnett for helping us work through some of the data that really lays out how complicated this issue is, as well as Dorian Cromarty. Dorian's not on the task force, but he did join us for an episode of The Newsroom back in April, and he helped us really dig into the lived reality of what's going on in these classrooms with empathy and understanding that you just can't get from the school grades alone. And lastly, but not least, thanks, of course, to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. Or you can find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.